This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. Welcome to Discovery. Today we have four podcasts from Seneca Journalism students. From our crime specialists, the story of three European tourists who came to Toronto and ended up dead, a woman who opened her heart and her home to a disabled dog, and how Zach Hyman's faith has affected his career. But first, the story of how an expert in environmental studies ended up in the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame without swinging a bat or throwing a pitch. The pitch on the way, a swing and a belt, left field, way back, Blue Jays win it! The Blue Jays are World Series champions as Joe Carter hits a three-run home run in the ninth inning and the Blue Jays have repeated as World It doesn't matter where you are, what team you cheer for, or how big is the league. Sports fans are everywhere, and they're just as passionate as any other fandom in the world. You can find them playing or cheering, sponsoring, reporting, or even narrating a game. However, it's not often you see sports fans getting recognition through academic work. Um, I've been a long-time researcher on baseball history in Canada, I guess. Sometimes some people refer to me as the premier historian. I'm not going to argue with them, but you know, there's lots of people who do research. I, I guess I've been the longest at digging into it and trying to make sense of uh, how baseball plays a role in in Canadian culture. And that is Bill Humber, and as he said it himself, he's one of the oldest baseball historians in Canada. So far, he has written 13 books on the topic, and more importantly. He is the first academic to join the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. His passion began early when he was a kid. Toronto used to have a team in the International League, which was the top minor league at the time, the Toronto Maple Leafs. They had the name before the hockey team, actually, intriguingly enough. Um, and, and so we went to games with my dad and my brother in the 19... I guess the first game I ever went to was in 1957. He was about eight years old at that time. And, and it left a strong impression on me. Any, any, you know, when you're a kid and you go to a sporting event, you're always kind of overwhelmed by the sights and the sounds and the smells and the people that are there, et cetera, et cetera. But it took more than just fun and games to turn Humber from a simple fan to an academic. So um, an extraordinary fact presented itself to me that a baseball game had been played in Beachville, Ontario which is a very small hamlet about halfway between Woodstock, Ontario and Ingersoll, Ontario and Southwestern Ontario. And the game had been played on the 4th of June, 1838. And it was such a stunning fact um, because for so long, Americans had claimed that baseball was invented in Cooperstown, New York in 1839. Yet here was a game played in Beachville in Canada in 1838. That was just the spark that motivated him to unravel the history of baseball in Canada. Today, Humber has become one of the biggest experts in the country. Since then, he found many other early examples of baseball being played here. In Hamilton, Ontario in 1819, in Toronto in 1803, St. John, New Brunswick in 1793. So clearly the game evolved, the game was not invented or created. That, that's the most important thing we can say about it. Humber's contribution to Canadian baseball history has been such a feature that it even awarded him an Order of Canada. 
my general argument that uh, the development of the of the modern game as we know it today was as much a process occurring in Canada as it was in the United States in the 19th century. So we as Canadians are owed as much credit for the development of the modern game as, as Americans are. And besides the impressive achievements in the field of sports, he has also accomplished a lot as a teacher and a community member. Two years after getting a master's degree in environmental studies, Bill Humber became director of the Eco-Seneca Initiatives. My task, my job was to constantly harp on these issues, raise these issues, bring them forward, integrate them within, you know, existing curriculum, etc., etc. Humber worked at Seneca for 41 years until 2018. During that time, not only did he help embed environmental issues to the academic programs, but he also started the Green Citizen Initiative. He also became co-chair at the Sustainable Seneca Committee and founded a course called Baseball Spring Training for Fans, where students could academically engage in baseball affairs. So the approach I took was that regardless of what program you're in, a student should at least leave the college with an understanding of issues beyond the immediate program. In other words, they should have some awareness of human rights issues, good written communications, uh, they should have some understanding of health and safety issues. Even beyond baseball and Seneca College, Humber is also an active member in its community in Bowmanville, Ontario. He was president of Valley's 2000, which constructed a fish passageway on the Bowmanville Creek. And he is currently secretary for the Jury Lands Foundation, which repurposed lands and buildings in Clarenton, Ontario, that were once used as prisons for prisoners of war during World War II, also formerly known as Camp 30. His achievements couldn't even fit in this podcast, to be honest. But a man like Humber would need at least a book to tell his stories. For Say News, I am Pedro Ambrosio in Toronto. Thanks for listening. Next up, our true crime experts, Farouk Edu, Gerlin Butar, and Andrew Kitchen, tell us about what was supposed to be a vacation to Toronto for three tourists from Europe that ended up in a trail of blood. When we think of vacation, we think happy thoughts, relaxation, exploration, new experiences, and a break from the grind of our everyday lives. We don't think of extreme violence and death, obviously. But for three European tourists, when they visited Toronto in September 2006, that's exactly what they found. It was a bloody disaster. Let's find out what happened. I'm Andrew Kitchen, and I'm with co-host Farouk Adu. Hi. And Gurleen Buttar. Hello. Welcome to Six Murders. On this podcast, we will be exploring six murders over six weeks, all of which took place in the six. These are some of Toronto's highest profile and most notorious cases. Buckle up, let's dive in. On September 11th, 2006, Detective Sergeant Steve Ryan was called to investigate a homicide at Toronto's largest hotel, the Delta Chelsea on the corner of Young Street and Girard. When he stepped out of the elevator on the 19th floor, it was like a scene out of a Stephen King novel. Crimson smears decorated the walls. 
A trail of blood led down the hallway, and bloody handprints were painted all around the elevator buttons, above them, below them, all around them, but he had missed the buttons. Only minutes before, hotel guests said they saw a naked, bleeding man run from his hotel room and collapse in the hallway just in front of the elevator. That man died where he lay. Detective Sergeant Ryan followed the trail of blood to room 1908. What he found inside made his stomach turn. There was so much blood, you could hardly see the walls. Detective Ryan said that in his entire career investigating homicides, this was the bloodiest scene he had ever encountered. It was on the ceiling, it was in the bathroom, there were pools of it on the floor. It was everywhere. The room had two double beds with white sheets. The far one painted entirely red. Just inside the door, Detective Ryan found a female body wearing a nightgown with a knife through her chest. The knife had been plunged so violently that it pierced through her chest, out through her back and into the hotel floor. Police locked down the hotel. No one was allowed in or out. At this point, police believe the killer may still be in the building. They started to sweep the hotel and question the other guests. The knife was a Swiss Army multi-tool 13-centimeter blade with Andre Oshwanden name graved on it. Andre was lying on the bed closest to the door. Compared to the other two bodies, there wasn't a huge amount of blood, but police did know 30 to 40 small nicks in his chest. His glasses were perfectly perched on his nose with a book in his hand. He seemed to have died peacefully, which was strange, considering the horrific state of the room. The police found three passports in the hotel room, so the bodies were identified quickly. The man in the hallway was Thomas Kaufman, a 35-year-old German-born man who had been living in Switzerland. The woman on the floor was Nadja Wersch, a 24-year-old Swiss woman who was due to turn 25 in just two days. And the man on the bed was Andre Oshwanden, 35 years old and also from Switzerland. Andre and Nadja the two people found inside the hotel room. They were both hearing impaired and they had planned this trip, a two-week excursion visiting many of the major cities in Canada as part of a travel group for the hearing impaired. According to police, Andre had a long-standing romantic interest in Nadia, but apparently she didn't feel the same way. The guy in the hallway, Thomas Kaufman, was a last-minute addition to the trip. He and Nadja had started dating recently, and Nadja decided she wanted to bring him along. They would all be staying in the same hotel room together. Andre apparently agreed to this agreement because he didn't want to lose the money he had deposited for this trip. As it would turn out, this was a recipe for disaster. All the three of the occupants in room 1908 died that night, so no one will ever know what exactly happened. But the police have a working theory. They believe that Wersch and Kaufman waited until 3 a.m. when they believed Ashwanden was sleeping and started being intimate. Ashwanden wasn't asleep. 
As he lay there, humiliated, as the love of his life made love to another man, he snapped. In a fit of jealous rage, he grabbed the knife and embarked on a murderous rampage. Police came to this theory for several reasons. One, they found a note, written by Schwanden to his mother, explaining that everyone on the trip was having a great time except him, and he just couldn't take it anymore. The second reason was the hatred with which the knife was plunged all the way through Naja, indicating the attack was highly personal. And the third reason was Ashwandan's cause of death. It was one of those 30 to 40 nicks on his chest, which police determined were self-inflicted. They're known as hesitation wounds. Ashwandan was trying to take his own life, but he couldn't bring himself to plunge the knife into his chest. So he gave up. He started reading and waited for the police to come. Little did he know that one of these hesitation wounds went just deep enough to nick his own heart, causing him to slowly bleed out before police arrived. For Toronto police, solving this murder was extremely important. The recent murders of two Canadian citizens in Mexico while they were on vacation had had a tremendous impact on the tourism industry in that country. And here were three dead European tourists in a Toronto hotel. The city wanted to protect its reputation as a safe destination for travelers. So there was pressure on the police to solve this quickly and quietly. They canvassed the hotel and guests said that they heard blood-curdling screams, arguments and extreme violence. But there was no tourist killer on the loose here in Toronto. This story was just a twisted love triangle that ended in tragedy. When passion turns to jealousy, and jealousy turns to rage, the results can be horrific, as evidenced by the scene in that fateful room 1908. And that wraps it up for this episode of Six Murders. Thank you for listening. We all truly love and appreciate your support. Be sure to tune in next week to learn about the tragedy of the Harrison family, a household that was consistently targeted with multiple murders. Until next time, cheers, Toronto. Zach Hyman was a popular member of the Maple Leafs until he signed with Edmonton Oilers over the summer. Ruben Gasse now looks at Hyman and his faith in God's chosen people. Welcome to the third episode of this podcast, The God's Chosen Ones. So episode one, we talked about a football player by, by the name of Julian Edelman. Then last episode, we went to the basketball court and we talked about Danny Avdia. And now we're moving on to a different sport, uh, hockey, and we are going to talk about Zach Hyman. Zach Hyman, he currently plays for the Edmonton Oilers. He just signed with them this past offseason after a run with the Maple Leafs, which he spent several seasons with them. Um, I'd say Zach Hyman is probably the most prominent uh, Jewish hockey player that's playing in the NHL right now. There are a few other Jewish NHL players with Adam Fox and the New York Rangers, who just won the uh, Norris Trophy last season. Uh, and there's also Jason Zucker and the Pittsburgh Penguins, who's also Jewish. But I'd say out of, out of any Jewish NHL player right now, Zach Hyman would be the first one that comes to mind and the most prominent one. For Hyman, growing up, being Jewish was a huge part of his life. Uh, he had been to Jewish day school uh, from, uh, like, 
to grade, early grade school to high, all the way to high school. So in his grade school days, he went to uh, United Synagogue Day School, USDS. It's a different name now. It's, it, the name of the school is different today. But uh, that the school that he went to and the location and the campus that he went to is still around. And then for his high school, he was so grade 9 to grade 12. Um, he went to uh, the Jewish day, Jewish, uh, Jewish day School as well. He went to the Community Hebrew Association of Toronto, better known by its acronym CHAT. And when, when you think of, especially for the students, because I, I know people who went to CHAT, people my age who went to chat and you know when they go to chat and when they go there he is like the most um i think a notable alumni that are, that has came out of that school uh, there have been two other hockey, professional hockey players that have um that have went to chat in their in their childhood in high school but they neither of those two made the nhl so hyman definitely uh the biggest alumni that has came out of uh chat as his nhl career has gone on he's been in the league for several years to this point uh, he he hasn't been one to necessarily show show off and you know show that he who he is as a person and show um, pride in being Jewish and I don't think it's because he's scared or because he doesn't care. I mean he's been to Jewish day school his whole life. I, I don't think it's that. I think it's more that he's just not someone to show off anything. Um, you know if you if you listen to Hyman talk to the media in interviews and just just after games and everything whenever he's interviewed and asked questions. Uh, he can see he's more of a laid-back guy. He's not one, you know, to rush to reporters and rush to to social media and rush to the media in general to talk about himself, talk about things, you know, going on with him, with the hockey, with his personal life. He's just not that kind of person. I think as a professional athlete, especially when all the media is on you, that's completely fine to do that because you want to do. You definitely do want to have some uh, privacy in in your life when your whole life is in front of a camera. Speaking of that though, one thing I will say and add and mention is that since Hyman has moved to Edmonton, so he just signed with the Oilers this past uh, offseason, since he went from Toronto to Edmonton, I guess more off the camera, he has has shown, you know, that he is Jewish. He is a Jewish person. So he used he used a Twitter account to wish people um happy holidays during Hoshana and Hanukkah. And during Hanukkah just past this past December uh, he went out to the uh, a local um, uh, synagogue in Edmonton to, I guess, um, uh, to bring himself into the Jewish community in Edmonton and get to know the Jewish community in Edmonton and the Jewish community around him because, you know, he's in a new surrounding. He wants to, he, he, he said himself that uh, being Jewish is important to him and he wants, I guess, think that he just wants to um, uh, make himself aware in the Jewish community and the, the Jewish community in Edmonton and just, you know, to show that he's, who he is as a person out, off, off the ice. So along with the change of team from Toronto to Edmonton, as he did last offseason, one thing that, another change that came with him that followed him to Edmonton was his jersey number 10. So with the Leafs, he wore number 11. Now with the Oilers, he wears number 18. And when he uh, uh, announced his jersey, jersey number 10, he said, he said there were two reasons for it. So one, the first reason was that he has a son, Theo, who was born December 18th of uh, 2020. So you know, 18. Uh, for his son, his son, who was born December 18th, which makes sense. But he said a second reason why he changed it from 11 to 18 was because the significance that number 18 has to the religion of Judaism. So just to go over quickly about why that why that number number 18 is so significant in Judaism. So in the Hebrew alphabet, there's the the letter the word uh, Chai, which means life in Hebrew, I mean life in life in English. So Chet is the eighth letter of the um, Hebrew alphabet, and Yud is 10. So Chet Yud is Chai. And then 10, 8 and 10, 8 plus 10 is 18. 
Hence, why the number 18 is uh, such a significant number in Judaism. As I mentioned earlier that Hyman is like more of a quiet guy, you know, he's not one to go to social media, or go to the media and, you know, kind of talk and show who he is. So just recently during the um, Freedom Convoy, you know, to protest um, vaccine mandates, people did see the, just the general public. They saw people who used the, the, the protest and the convoy to push the hateful ideologies, like people with Confederate flags and swastikas. So because of that and because of all the, the all the hate that we saw, uh, Hyman used his platform as a professional athlete to speak out about it. So just it just there was an uh, um an article that came out with the Athletic, with with the, with the title the headline Oilers Zach Hyman is compelled to speak up about anti-Semitism when he sees it. So this article was just uh, published February first, um, and then something he said is uh, a quote from the article that he said. It's just it's disturbing and disheartening to see that anti-Semitism is on the rise, unfortunately, which is crazy nowadays. Seeing that and being Jewish and being part of my heritage, and it was just Holocaust Memorial Day a couple of days ago, and it was right around it was right around the time the swastika were up. Hopefully, I can bring awareness that that things like this, like things like that, aren't okay. It was just disturbing to see that. So this is just an example of Hyman, who, despite the fact that he's more of a quiet guy, he 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 did, and he's willing to use his platform to speak out about. Um, uh, him being Jewish and, I guess, raising awareness to anti-Semitism and all that. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I hope that this episode you got to learn more about Hyman and who he is as a person and as a Jewish person. Uh, next episode we'll be talking about Sandy Koufax. So I'll be moving uh to an I think that's more an athlete that's um an, an older one, someone that hasn't uh played in a long, long time. Uh, and hopefully you'll listen to that one as well. Thanks for listening. Next up, take a visit to a pet store or humane society and it's hard not to be charmed by the little puppies there. But what about dogs that have challenges? Caitlin Hartley has a story now of a woman who opened her heart and her home to a dog who was in a wheelchair. Welcome to today's episode of Save Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Hartley. This week we're talking about how one wheelchair-bound dog found her way into a remarkable woman's home and heart. The idea of adopting a dog from a shelter instead of buying one is no new concept. But what about the pets that aren't so adoptable? The ones that are maybe blind or deaf or just very senior and can't always hold their bladders. What about the wheelchair-bound pets we've seen all over social media or the ones with the balance issues? What happens to those pets? Do they get adopted as dogs without special needs? Those are some of the questions that Teddy Sarah asked herself and found some answers along the way when she began fostering dogs. Teddy had been working with shelters to help foster dogs for years. Each story was a successful one. She would foster them, they would find a home through the shelter, and she would open up her home to the next foster. But that changed once Penny came into her life. I'm really involved with the shelter in New York City, and I just started volunteering when I moved there. I googled shelters near me and I found one this was like eight years ago now and just started out walking dogs cleaning cages and everything like that and worked my way up to fostering dogs so then I 
fostered over the course of a couple years 22 dogs and one kitten. And then my last foster was a paralyzed dog who had been rescued from Iran. And um, she's the dog that I ended up adopting. So she's my dog now, and um, she's a little doggy wheelchair. So when you adopt, like, a pet with special needs, what is sort of, what are the challenges that are involved with that? Yeah, so there's a lot of challenges involved with it. Um, One is a lot of them can't go to the bathroom the way normal dogs can. They can't control that. So Pani has to wear a diaper, and you have to do something called expressing them, which is helping them, like you manually help them go to the bathroom. So that's why she wears the diaper, so it's getting used to that. Um, But even that has some perks, too, because when it's like a snowstorm or something, you don't have to go outside with them because you change their diapers instead. So there's that. And then um, another thing is for their care, it's really important that they get rehab so that um, their bodies can function to the best of their ability despite their physical challenges. So rehab is very expensive and hard to come by. I'm lucky in New York there's two different rehab facilities in the city. But um, I'd say that's like the biggest thing with having a special needs pet, the extra money that goes into caring for them, giving them rehab, giving them a wheelchair, and then the bathroom situation. And then other than that, it's all just so like wonderful and mm. just like having any other dogs. But it wasn't always easy to know that she could take on a wheelchair-bound pup who can't exactly use her own bladder. To get a professional's take on the matter, I spoke with local veterinarian Dr. Kyla Mayerhofer and asked her why special needs dogs might have a harder time finding a home. Special needs pets have a more difficult time getting adopted because they require more commitment and more work and also financially have some unpredictable costs. Um, So for that reason, they can have a bad chance of getting adopted. Do you find that it's harder to adopt out animals with special needs? Yes, so definitely. And that is part of why I ended up adopting her instead of my 20 plus other foster dogs. It's so hard to get dogs adopted, first of all, because so many people... Your college is in Canada? Yeah, I'm in Ontario. Okay, yeah. So, I don't know. I actually don't think it's the same in Canada, because I know sometimes we transfer dogs to Canada to be adopted, but in the U.S., there's just so many dogs in shelters, and so just period, trying to educate people about the importance of adopting and so there's that level of it. Then it's hard um, if a dog's not a puppy, if they're an adult dog, that makes it even harder for them to get adopted. Then when you put special needs on top of that, that's just a whole other level. So the way that it really worked out for me was because I'd been fostering a lot and she was my foster dog. And so I was overwhelmed at the prospect of taking care of her and figuring it all out and the bathroom situation. But, um, because it was just going to be my foster dog. I thought it was temporary, so I was like, I can do this. I can do this for a few months, no problem. And what ended up happening is no one wanted to adopt her because she was special needs. So month after month passed, and she ended up being my longest foster dog. 
right around the seven month mark, I realized I was like, you know what? I've been fostering her for so long and at this point I do know how to take care of her so well and it's not like challenging or overwhelming to me anymore so it makes the most sense that I would keep her and then it was really nice because at the time I couldn't like afford all her care her extra care like the diapers and the rehab and so um a lot of my followers had been reaching out to me on Instagram and asking me like will you keep ponies I seem like such a great match and I kept writing back and saying oh I'd love to but you know I'm not the right home for her I really can't afford to have her in rehab um so I'm not going to be able to keep her and so many of my followers that I had said that to would write me back and say I'll donate to her care please I just want to see her stay with you so what ended up happening is the shelter and I did a um GoFundMe (laughs) at that time and my followers donated enough for her rehab for an entire year so it was amazing so that's the only way that I was able to keep her because I had a different job at the time and I did not make enough money for her to also go to rehab so it was just like a really great like story that they all donated to her care because they were so invested in us staying together. While caring for special needs pets may have their own difficulties and challenges, having them be a part of your life can be a wonderful and rewarding experience, just as Teddy had welcoming Panny into her life. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Save Radio Podcasts. I'm Caitlin Hartley, and have a great day. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with more Seneca Journalism student podcasts on Discovery. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 105.9 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.